0: Last week, we heard that Jesus does everything well. I heard somebody say it out there. So let's go ahead and do that. That's ahead of when I was in my notes, but that's okay. Jesus Jesus does does everything everything well. well. We saw this in his teachings, we saw this in his healings, we saw this in the experiences of the people around him. We experience it every day in our praying, in our serving, in our giving. We experience that Jesus does everything well in the partaking of the sacrament of Holy Communion and the reading of the Scriptures and praying. We experience Jesus doing everything well. We know that Jesus does everything well. Today. Today, we find Jesus on a road trip with his disciples. And he asks them, Who do people say that I am? And they reply with a list of possible characters. John the baptizer, Elijah, one of the prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, one of those prophets from the Old Testament. Rather than to give their own opinion or belief, they tell him exactly what he asks them, what the people say about him, who they say he is. So Jesus decides to pin them down. Who do you say that I am? And that's one of the historic, classic questions of the Christian faith. What do you think of Christ? Who do you think Jesus is? Who is Jesus for you? What does it mean for you to be a disciple Of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us to have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? What impact does such a confession have for how we live our lives? Who is Jesus for you, to you, for you? I think that most of us would probably have several answers to these questions. Depending on where we are in our lives, we may have multiple responses to these kinds of questions. When we're in trouble, Jesus rescues us. When we're in sin, Jesus saves us. When we're lost, Jesus finds us. When we're in darkness, Jesus is our light. When we're sick, Jesus is our healer. When we're sad or afraid or in pain, Jesus is our comforter. When we're doubting, Jesus is our certainty. When we're dying, Jesus is our life. When we're facing our death or the death of others, Jesus brings us life abundantly, even at its end. How we answer the questions may vary greatly depending upon where we are in our own living. Just to say Jesus is Lord is perfectly simple and perfectly fine and perfectly true. But what does that mean to say that He is our Lord? What does it mean to say that Jesus is our Lord, my Lord, your Lord? What does Lordship mean? Mean to us here in the 21st century in America, where we don't have kings and queens and princes, what does it mean for us to say, Jesus is my Lord? We got government officials, we got presidents and secretaries of state, we've got governors and senators and representatives, we even have mayors. (laughs) What does it mean, though, to say, Jesus is my governor? Ooh, That kind of changes it, doesn't it? Jesus is my president. Jesus is my senator. Jesus is my representative to the Father. Wow. Jesus mayors my life. Jesus is my Lord. That sort of gives that phrase a little more oomph to it here in our society and culture. Here's another one. Jesus is my boss. Ooh. Ooh. Jesus is my district superintendent, my bishop, my shepherd. Hey, hey, hey. I like that one. Jesus is my Lord. What does it mean for us to say, Jesus is my Lord? When Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? It was a Peter who immediately pops off with the answer, the right answer. You are the Messiah. Over in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives him here at this point his nickname. Because he has said this, because he has rightly answered, because he's given the correct answer, yes, and he won that million dollars, Bingo! you are Rocky. He calls him Kepha in Hebrew. Sometimes that's transliterated into English as Cephas, Kepha. And Kepha meant rocky or stony. And it was used in Hebrew and in Aramaic as um, a nickname, just like you might call someone rocky or shorty. Or baldy. Rocky was his nickname. Jesus gives him his nickname here. You are Rocky. And upon you I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that gets translated into Greek. With the Greek word for rock. Which is Petros. From which we get the name Peter. No Peter did not have an English name. One of the people who likes to criticize the Christian faith and say that Jesus didn't exist says that all these characters that Jesus runs around with all have English names in the Bible. Yeah, they're in translation. (laughs) Often from Greek names which are translations of Hebrew names. Wow. Petros, Peter, comes from a translation of the meaning of Kepha, which means rocky. Huh. You are rocky, and on you I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I find it interesting that this is in Matthew's gospel, but not in Mark's. Mark, the person who wrote the first gospel, which is what Mark was, the first written gospel, Mark had as his teacher, Peter. He gets all that he knows about the Christian faith, other than a few scenes where he was following along, like in the Garden of Gethsemane. He gets all of his knowledge from Peter, of Jesus' teachings, of Jesus' healings, of what Jesus did and where Jesus went. He gets it from Peter. And it's interesting that Peter leaves this part of the story out. The part, yes, you are the Messiah, he puts in. He leaves out how he got his nickname. You are Kepha, Rocky, Petros. Peter, and on you, I'll build my church. Instead, he jumps directly to what Jesus then says, which is, shh, don't tell anyone. It's a secret. Don't tell them that I am the Messiah. Why? And now he says why. You see, the Jewish faith at this time, and to this day, has an understanding of who and what the Messiah is supposed to be. The Messiah has a job description. And that job description is as follows. The Messiah is going to be a ruling general who will conquer the Roman occupation armies and throw them out and be victorious in battle. The Messiah will also be a king who will set up the kingdom of David here on earth, reestablish the kingdom of David here on earth, reestablish the reign of the Jewish people over themselves and others. And thirdly, would be a high priest, the Messiah would be a high priest who would set up right worship in the temple. Right worship of the Jewish people, ritual worship, prayer, faith, practice would all be cleansed of its pagan um, glommings on that had accrued to it over time that had occluded on to it over time and would reestablish right worship that was the job description for the Messiah military general to defeat the Romans king to establish the kingdom of David and a high priest to set up right worship of Yahweh Elohim. That was what the Messiah was supposed to do. And what Jesus had to tell them as to what was going to happen didn't include that. He says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said all of this quite openly. Where is this business of being a military general? Where is this business of being a king? Where is this business of setting up right worship as a priest? Where is all that? Generals don't die, not if they're victorious. Kings don't die, they set up their kingdoms. Priests don't get killed. They set up right worship. They lead the rituals. They slaughter the calf. They sprinkle the blood. Where is this suffering that you're talking about Jesus? Got to remember. Now we say, well, there's the suffering servant Messiah, not at this time. Not yet. The Jews did not conceive of the Messiah as being a suffering servant. That's a Christian interpretation of the passages in Isaiah that come later, that come between the life and ministry of Jesus and the writings of the Gospels. That short little window of 30 years or so. During that period of time, the Christian faith especially during the ministry of Paul, the Christian faith, articulated an understanding of the Messiah as the suffering servant. An image that the Jews don't give to the Messiah, they give to themselves. To this day, they view themselves as the suffering servant, bringing the light of God's love to the world and suffering for their identity as such. They view the Holocaust in that light. So the suffering business no. Peter hears this. He hears Jesus say this after having been told he was the rock. After having been told he got it right. Yes, he's the Messiah. Okay, this is what the Messiah does. And now Jesus says, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And Peter hears this and goes, no. Jesus, you're wrong. Now, can you imagine that? No. <laughs> I mean, that one just kind of blows my mind right there. Jesus, you're wrong. You know, if I had said that, there'd be a wet spot on the ground where I had been because God would have struck me dead. Peter grabs him, springs him aside, rebukes him. Far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus turns to the disciples and then in the presence of the disciples rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. Satan. Wow. After having professed him as the Messiah, after getting it right, after getting the right answer, he then stumbles. He doesn't do it right. He gets himself rebuked. It's as if this affirmation of him as the the rock upon whom Jesus will build the church, it's as if this affirmation saying, yes, you got it right. Yeah, you're right. I'm the Messiah. It's as if that affirmation goes right to Peter's head. And so when he hears this new definition that Jesus has for what he will be and what will happen to him as Messiah, he can't grasp it. He can't get his mind around it. And so he opens his mouth and shoves his foot into it all the way down to the heel, as he will often do, and gets rebuked for it. Poor Peter. He gets himself into trouble a lot in ways like this. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when all the light show was going on and Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah and his body's fluorescing like a stained glass window, like one of these windows over here with the sun behind it. He wants to get into the middle of it. They've been snoozing, wakes up, sees this going on, goes, Shazam, let's get into the middle of this. Let's build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And God has to say to him, Hush, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Stop running off at your mouth and listen to what Jesus has to say. Walking on water. He gets his eyes off of Jesus and onto the waves. He starts to sink. Jesus, save me, he says. He's usually depicted as one of the disciples who at the Last Supper was arguing as to who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. In the garden, he says, we'll stay awake with you and pray. And then promptly falls asleep. In the garden, he takes a sword and chops off the ear of the high priest, Malchus. And Jesus has to say to him, Put down your sword. For those who will live by the sword will die by the sword. During the Last Supper, he said, I'll never leave you, Jesus. I'll stick with you to the end. I'll never desert you. And then, during the trial before the Sanhedrin Jesus denies him not once not twice but three times and then runs away in tears in many ways Peter to be the rock upon whom Jesus would build his church is a great big disappointment that's true for most of Jesus' disciples Peter was a hothead Matthew was an IRS tax collector. That meant he collaborated with the Roman occupation forces. To be a tax collector and be a Jew meant you were the worst kind of turncoat. And we don't like tax collectors, do we? Unless you happen to be one. We don't have any here, do we? (laughs) Thomas was a doubter. Let us go with him so we can die too, he said. I won't believe it until I see the holes in his hands and his side. James and John Zebedee sent their mommy to ask Jesus for the best seats in the kingdom. (laughs) Judas, whom Jesus chose to hold the money bag, betrays him. Mary Magdalene, the first evangelist of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, had been possessed by seven demons not exactly the kind of people that you'd choose to be on your board of directors, right? No. What makes us think that Jesus does everything well when he chooses a bunch of failures like this? If he does everything well, why didn't he choose a group of better disciples? Put better If Jesus does everything well, why does he choose you and me? Because I will guarantee you, each and every one of us will fail Jesus just as spectacularly as Peter did. Indeed, there's a powerful scene in the Last Supper when Jesus has said that one of you will betray me And Jesus says, when they ask him, who is it? Jesus says, the one who's dipped his bread into the dish with me. And guess what? They'd all dipped their bread into the dish with him. In another scene, it says, when they asked, who is it? In a different gospel, he says, the one whose hand is on the table. They all had their hands on the table. Yes, you and I, we will all, just assuredly as Peter did, we will all fail Jesus. And knowing that we would fail, He chooses us anyway. Just as knowing that Peter would fail, knowing that Judas would fail, knowing that James and John would be the sons of thunder, they would fail. They would all run away, leaving only... John the beloved disciple and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus there at the cross, knowing that they would fail, he chooses them. He chooses us anyway. And he says this, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Oh, I don't want to take up my cross, Jesus. I don't want to deny myself, Jesus. I mean, there are times, late at night, late in the afternoon, when I am exhausted. I don't want to. I'm not. You know, Thursday night, I don't have my sermon ready. I'd rather go out and play. Get a phone call from a friend. Greg, we're going bowling. You want to join us? I still got at least two pages on my sermon to go. What do I do? I fail. I set it aside and go bowling. Should have finished it already. I go bowling. I don't want to deny myself and take up my cross. Most of us, I think, most of us, if we're honest, don't want to deny ourselves and take up our crosses. We want to be comfortable. You don't want to be uncomfortable. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. And as if he didn't get it, he keeps going. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. It's not just about giving it up. It's about knowing that this is the one thing that is worth giving up everything for. Following Jesus is the one thing that is worth giving it all up for. Amen. And that's where Satan worms his little way in. I'll give it all up, but I'll keep a little bit hidden. I'll give it all up, but I'll keep this little piece of my life hidden, Jesus. You don't have to see it. Here, I'll hide it behind my robes. I'll give it all up, except for this. That's where Satan kind of worms his little way in. We have our own agenda, our own ideas of what the kingdom of God should be like, our own ideas of what we should be doing as the church or as Christians. We have our own ideas. We're going to keep that little bit over here, kind of hidden. We'll pull it out when it becomes convenient to us. We'll beat somebody over the head with it when we think we can get away with it. not according to Jesus. You got to give it up in order to live. You have to give up that precious little thing. Remember in the Lord of the Rings film? My precious that ring. Sometimes we'll hang on to it and it will tear us to pieces. It'll corrupt us. And we may give everything else up, but if we keep that one little thing that we know we're supposed to give up, that little sin, that little habit, that little desire, that little self-agenda that we know we're supposed to let go of, it will corrupt us. That was where Peter was. When he thought he knew better than Jesus what a Messiah was supposed to do. Far be it from you, Lord, for this to happen to you. You're supposed to be a general and a king and a priest, not a suffering servant. My theology is more important than yours, Jesus, is what Peter is saying. And that's the danger that many of us get ourselves into when we think we know better what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. For what will it profit them We are called to take up our crosses. And we may have different crosses. I think we do. For some of us, it means giving up power and position and authority. For others, it means assuming a position of leadership that we don't want to. We'd rather hide in the background. For some, it means getting up and getting uncomfortable. And going out and speaking words to others. Words of the love of God. Words of the peace of God. Words that we'd rather hog to ourselves. I mean, I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. and I love the message of the grace of Jesus Christ. And by God, I know I need all the grace I can get. And if I give some of that grace to somebody else, I might not have enough. That sounds silly, but that's how we act. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And the moment, the instant that something gets between us and our following Jesus the way he calls us to follow him, that very instant, Jesus says to us, get behind me, Satan. Hmm what cross do you need to pick up, friends? What do you need to set aside? What do you need to get rid of in your life? What is blocking you from following Jesus? What desire, what need, what sin, what hope, what dream that's not good for you is getting between you and following Jesus? Whatever it may be, my friends, we can let it go. Jesus says it very clearly. Take up your cross and follow me. Take it up. Oh, Jesus bore the cross for me. He bore the cross alone. Yes, he did. And then he calls us to bear our own crosses too. Throughout the Gospels, there are many stand-ins for the readers of the Gospels. The beloved disciple is supposed to be one of those stand-ins. So is the man who is forced to carry Jesus' cross. In the stories in the Gospels, when it comes to that point, and he's heading to Golgotha to be crucified, we are called to take up our cross to help Christ in carrying His. That means setting aside ourselves for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Setting aside our own understandings, our own theories, our own comfort zones to follow Jesus and what Jesus says for us and calls us to do. I don't know what your cross is, my friends. I know what mine is. Or at least one of them. Maybe two. Actually three. Four. I could probably go for twelve. And so could you. I don't know what your crosses are. But we're called to take them up and set aside ourselves and follow Jesus. May we do that with faith, trusting in God's grace, and may we follow Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And may God's people say,